0: You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station 3RR 102.7 in Melbourne.
1: Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave our live broadcast from the beautiful 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 forum. We are downstairs at the Melbourne International Film Festival lounge. We are lounge are we lounging? Lounge. Are we a ladies lounging. who lounge? This is a ladies cave. This is the lady cave. Plato's Cave have gone all girl tonight. Um, my name is Alexandra Nicholas. I am joined here this evening by my delightful Cavian colleagues, Siries Howard and Emma Westwood. Hi, guys. Hi, Alex. Hi, Alex. And we... It's a special, special lady cave. We have a special, special, special guest, the wonderful Tara Judah, one of the founders of the Plato's Cave program. Hi, Tara. Hi! What brings you to town, Tara, aside from this good time?
2: Yeah, well, I was pretty excited to come back mostly just to uh, join the Lady Cave when there were more ladies entering the cave. I heard overseas and I was like, got to get back in that action. (laughs) Um, I need to be in the hot seat and hear Alex say she's going to pack a bong for something straight up in (laughs) front of me. Need to see that. Um, Yeah, so back in town for the festival um, and yeah, visiting and having a great time. This is good. This is good. You are in the right place to have a good time. We're going
1: to kick off talking about Greg McLean's Jungle starring Daniel Radcliffe which of course was the opening night film at MIFF this year. This film is about Yossi Ginsberg, the real life person who was in the jungle as the title implies and escaped from aforementioned jungle in real true story action brought to the screen with quicksand.
0: Massive spoiler, we know that he actually survived. We know that he survived because he was (laughs) there on opening night. He was (laughs) (laughs) and he looked intact. I actually thought quicksand was a complete construct of cinema. Gilligan's Island, that's how I know about quicksand. I I actually thought it was a... a, This is... Seriously, I thought it was factually a cinematic device. It didn't exist. But maybe that was just really deep mud. But he did... (laughs) Yes. He almost didn't get out of it, but yes.
2: Cerise and Tara, how do we go with Jungle? wasn't quite to my liking, I'll be honest. Not really my cup of tea. I did find that kind of quicksand scene a little bit like... The never-ending story but instead of having the emotional pull of Artax it was kind of a man in a backpack so it didn't really work (laughs) for me Um, there wasn't enough character development um, or enough story at the start I I kind of felt like they tried to flesh out the male narrative um, the kind of machismo characters fighting amongst themselves but actually the real journey only begins when you lose that so for me it just took too long to kind of get going how about you Cerise
3: I don't think Greg McLean likes backpackers very much. He's really <laughs> seemingly keen on narratives involving ordeals uh, imposed upon backpackers. That's a hell
1: of a brand.
3: Yeah. Um, <laughs> where can he take that next? I don't know. I, I actually quite enjoyed this. It, it was as, um, as as sort of mainstreamly satisfac- satisfying an opening night film as it's been for some time. And, yeah. and I, I don't generally veer towards the mainstream in my tastes, I like to think, but I, I, I just... <laughs> I just sat back and let it wash over me, and I I felt things, and by which I don't mean necessarily an emotional ride, I just actually... Responded. I responded with winces and anguish and uh, consternation... And occasionally I wanted the backpackers to perish because they're a bunch of privileged brats <laughs> abroad and they kind of have it coming. But Wolf Creek's kind of taking care of that. So
1: <laughs> I, I thought this... I mean, I thought it was a really... It reminded me of the stuff that I watched a lot of as a kid, things like The Wonderful World of Disney. It had that kind of classical boy's own adventure and I think there's all the, the kind of weird colonial baggage that goes with that. But I was kind of happy just to go for the ride for yeah. the kind of... Um, I mean, it was fun. The roller coastery mm. creepiness that, that went with it. let us We have an absurd amount of films to get through tonight we so let's do. <laughs> do it this is this is almost like a um, spectator sport cerise let's kick I think you're going to kick off with Axolotl Overkill, which I swear sounds like a 90s nu-metal band, but apparently it's a film. We're going to talk about, in the spirit of Lady Cave, we're going to kick off by talking by some, about some women-directed, women-centred films. Mm. Tell us about this Axolotl and its alleged overkill.
3: Yeah, the yeah, this is one curious film. It's, it's not um, a conventional narrative by any stretch of the imagination. It, it, it all centres around a 16-year-old, a, a young woman. and She's very precocious. Uh, she has all manner of adventures across um, uh, a burgeoning sexuality that is expressed quite freely. She's She has a very strange um, set of relationships with family members. She's kind of just um, out of control in the most wonderful way. This film is a it's a real mosaic. It's a very episodic, but not in a particularly linear way. It's a very compelling performance by the lead character, this extraordinary dance sequence that um, left me gobsmacked. It's a, parts of the film sort of dragged a little, but time to time I was totally um, uh, absorbed by this uh, unpredictable, unpredictable film. Um, unpredictable in a way that would probably drive some people completely bonkers and wonder why they invested any time in a film that, that kind of went nowhere. But um, for me, exciting because I had no idea what she was going to get up to her next. And her name was, I think, Mifty, if I remember correctly. <laughs> that,
1: that is honestly, I guess, how I felt about I Am Not a Witch. I think my, my take home, I was blown away by this film. This is um, made by a young uh, Zimbabwean Welsh filmmaker called uh, Renungo Naoni. Uh, this is her debut feature film and I think I described it as an African feminist Chris Morris mashup, which is honest to God, I'm, it, that, that is my first <laughs> bong pack of the night. <laughs> yes. And I was blown away by this film. I think it's as close to perfect cinema as I'm going to get. It's, on, it, it's definitely a myth highlight. How did you go with I Am Not a Witch? Am I? I saw you there yeah, emoting.
0: I'm, yeah, I'm the same as you. I think that you, you've actually spoken before about seeing something, yearning for something new on the screen and while witchcraft and the idea of women being accused of being witches through the ages and including modern day has not been it's not something that's unexplored this was um, presenting it in such a unique way. Um, I think that the use of humour was excellent in it as well, because the humour didn't actually undermine what the the film was presenting. It was more that we would it, it just the ludicrousness of what was. Presented was where the humour was derived from, and um, it was it was quite distressing. It wasn't a bonding film in terms of the, the central character was a young girl who was accused of being a witch, and in a what Zimbabwean community, a sort of isolated in Zibu- Zimbabwean yeah. community. And uh, it wasn't um, particularly inspiring in the way that they that she wasn't supported much or anything like that, and ultimately. I won't say anything <laughs> it's but, good bomb pack it's, it's good but it also has this really astounding imagery of that those cotton reels that the witches are attached to they are actu- actually attached by ribbons which is a really central image for the whole film and it's it just, it's seared into my mind. It's I one don't of those films, this is, what, this is what
2: cinema can do. Absolutely. Yeah, it's beautiful. Absolutely. Apparently Japanese girls, they never die. Tara, tell me about this. Oh my god, this film is so amazing and completely crazy. Um, it's in the traditional style of crazy Japanese cinema, <laughs> which is a genre that exists, <laughs> um, where the storyline is kind of out of control, but really, um, really fascinating. So this this young woman, Haruko Izumi, who is an office worker, goes missing, um, and and there is also simultaneously a number of other storylines, a kind of um, a few disgruntled women in different areas of their lives. But one of the greatest elements of which is this young group of schoolgirls who go around attacking men that are alone late at night. Just like we do. Just like like you always wished you could be in a girl gang. It's um, kind of like the penultimate girl gang. So they go around beating up these guys um, and kind of, you know, holding them to to ransom. And it's really a film that takes extreme genre, you know, modes to play with this idea of the repressed society and the extreme gender imbalance in Japan. And so they do actually address really serious issues like gender pay gap, um, social inequality, the kind of decorum that causes complete breakdown um, in all kinds of situations, the over-sexualized culture. All of those sorts of things are actually addressed, but in this really high-concept extreme comic film. Um, and it's absolutely hilarious. And if I can just give one anecdote about when I saw this film, which was actually um, some months ago at a different film festival, what I, what I found amazing about it was that every single male critic that was in the room at the screening I was at Left, sort of like at five or ten minute intervals and I just wanted to shout every time they left this is what the entire history of cinema has been like for women now you see like you can't even watch one man being beat up in kind of like jest for comical entertainment value so it's a real um, you know gender turn it on its head kind of film that is really extreme it's not made to incite violence or to condone it but it's extremely funny and it really hits its point home hard about gender inequality sounds like Alex Catnip yeah You're going to well, love it.
3: wonderful.
1: Suresse, <laughs> <laughs> so, tell us about Western.
3: Sure. Uh, Valeska Grisebach. That's a very satisfying name oh, to wrap a around. Say it again, say it again. Valeska Grisebach. Um,
1: She's great already.
3: Yes. Uh, the new film, Western, uh, is, uh, as the title suggests, riffing a bit on the Western genre, but really it's having a little, little look at uh, contemporary European relations Where um, in in lands, especially borderlands, where memories are very long and where Bulgarians near the Greek border don't necessarily welcome German workers who've turned up one day to notionally do them a favour by building some great infrastructural thingy. Um, And uh, all these tensions emerge, not unlike uh, a Western, uh, between various quite um, machistic characters there is a um, not quite a man with no name because we learn his name quite early on. It's Meinhardt, <laughs> but um, nonetheless, he's he's the the grizzled um, drifter who who attaches himself to this group of Germans who have come to this place where they're really not made very welcome. Not least when they hoist a German flag from up on high above the village that they're notionally there to help. Lots of tensions simmer and boil over occasionally, and it's all quite. Slow cinema, yet Western, yet satisfying—a sort of little, it, it teases out a lot of those wonderful tensions in, in in the Europe of today. And what I especially like is that. Uh, more and more we're seeing films that just flip some little things. We, you mentioned uh, a nice little flip in the Japanese Girls Never Die, one that's a long time coming and yeah. bring that on. Mm-hmm. But just here we, we see so many narratives about the, the fear in the West of Eastern Europeans coming to steal their jobs. <laughs> Brexit seems to be a lot about that. So this is the other way I'm around. I'm sorry the, the, on behalf you know, of my yeah, nation. Yeah,
2: well,
3: <laughs> but this here the Westerners are coming to the East to do work which is uh, in a quite depressed area and I find that really interesting. Interesting.
1: Jumping cultures, I believe. Um, Emma Marlena, the murderer in Four Acts, has been a huge amount of buzz about this film. This is an Indonesian female-fronted revenge film. I understand.
0: Yeah, pretty much so. But it really is also a Western, so it links in oh. with um, what uh, Zuri is saying. I think that the title <laughs> is kind of Western in, in some ways as well. But um, this is what is it? It's seen. It's been touted as a feminist Indonesian spaghetti. Western or satay Western, as I've heard the term. Oh, please! Around. Really? I, know. I heard Edan we Western needed. recently. Oh, really? I've
1: not heard the um, Brimstone. But.
0: <laughs> but this is this is worth the hype. It's it's a fantastic film. It's um, beautiful, absolutely beautiful, in the way that you'd hope a traditional Western would be in terms of the epic landscapes. This was filmed on the island of Sumba, which isn't far off Bali. Although I don't think many Australian tourists go there. Um, it doesn't deal with anything to do with Islamic culture, which some people would expect, I guess, in terms of a Indonesian Western, because Sumba is actually a Christian island. So um, there is at one point where she the, the character Marlena, who is our murderer, is asked if she wants to go to church and confess. So it's actually culturally appropriate in this in this uh, case. But this starts in, um, you know, Marlena's uh, husband has passed away and she's actually invaded by a group of bandits and really they take over the house and they expect to uh, be made feel welcome in a number of ways physically and with chicken soup Um, and all the while the imagery in this movie is incredible her husband's corpse is in the corner sort of sitting cupping his um, face and he is a constant uh, figure through the film, she actually moves away but then comes back to it Um, it's very much about her revenge, Um, it's kind of we could recall it Bring Me the Head of Marcus um, and there's a wonderful disembodied head imagery that kind of haunts her throughout it who's playing like a in- Indonesian two-string um, guitar. But uh, it's very, a lot of humour in it but not kooky. Uh, once again, worked in beautifully in the way that I Am Not a Witch uses humour. Nice. Um, and very clever film. She's I, a filmmaker to watch this woman. I have no way of segueing that
1: name. <laughs> to the film that I want to talk about next, um, The Ornithologist by Jao Pedro Rodriguez. I'm going to be brief on this. I adore this film. This is one of my, my myth highlights. It's also played at the Queensland Film Festival. This is really, and I'm, I know that this is a big call, but this is this is really the Portuguese bird-watching gay Jesus film of the year. I'm going to call it now. I know, you're big seeing call. this live in the forum. This is the, the calls are being made. Tara, you saw Manifesto. This is the Julian uh, Roosevelt Project, this is linked... I think there was an exhibition at ACME. Yeah. Mm. That that was sort of tied into this. I'm curious to hear about this. ACME and
2: also at, I think, the um, New South Wales... Fine Art Museum and so it was originally set as a 12 channel installation um, and this is basically each of the segments as, as well as a prologue so 13 segments put together um, just as one big feature film so I never actually saw the installation which from what I gather and have heard is is much more like a barrage of Kate Blanchett's kind of shouting at you at one time because she plays every character in the film and in each um, each segment she embodies one of the different major art movements so she kind of takes on experience. Expressionism, pop art, Dadaism, etc. Um, ad nauseum to kind of 12. Does it work as a film? It, I think actually it does work as a film and I, I kind of thought that it would probably be too much to take in as an as an installation only in that the language is so dense because it's all art theory mm-hmm. terminology um, and it's all criticism of capitalism and that is always really dense. Do they make you so, pay to see it? This is the question. Do you have <laughs> to pay to see films about capitalism? I think you do. About um, <laughs> <capitalism>, <laughs> yeah, and I think actually what the, the film is kind of like almost like something you have to survive. It's kind of, um, it reminded me a lot of certified copy but just not not just because it deals with issues of authenticity. jungle. <laughs> but also just because you're being shouted at by this incredibly powerful actress um, and I sort of felt almost bruised by that but at the same time Cate Blanchett is you know so strong and powerful but I think she also has a kind of softness to her which makes it all the more affecting. So I actually thought it really worked as a film.
1: Speaking of being being bruised by a film, Emma, Sleeping Beauty, not so much a fan...
2: No. This is the
1: um, Adolfo Arietta film, Sleeping yes, Beauty, the yes, French it's film. A,
0: yes, it's an interesting film. Oh, I'll say very... I found it very um,
2: segmented and self-conscious, let's put it that way. Tara, you were um, more of a fan? Yes. Yeah, I did really like it, but I think self-conscious is right on, actually. Um, for me, this film only works because it's French and it wouldn't work if it was in <laughs> any other... made by any other nation, you know, if any other kind of language or um, perspective on this. It's a really beautiful-looking, film, and it's very heavy stylized, but it's very fantastical, um, and it straddles that line between what I think is very fine, um, irritating whimsy, and uh, kind of, you know, like, careful imaginary beauty. So it worked for me but only because I thought it was actually a little bit aware of what it was doing Mm. Um, and I think it kind of acknowledges that pretty early on when the young prince is like this kind of hipster dude who's playing this ridiculous free-form improv jazz (laughs) Um, and it's it's so of its type that I thought they cannot possibly be doing this po-faced, it has to be aware. And that that comes after the kind of
0: crayon hand-drawn titles which are like children's titles and then goes into, it's and which has no bearing on anything mm-hmm. else in the film. So. I, I, I
2: think that that's fair. It's somewhere between yeah. Science of Sleep. Like, it's kind of along the Michelle Gondry line of things, but maybe slightly more on the Science of Sleep end and not quite as painful um, as his sort of later films. But, yeah, I can... Definitely see that this is one that's going to divide people and not to everybody's taste. If you can handle a bit of whimsy and a bit of kind of the magical realism, um, I thought it was entertaining and funny, but, you know, I can totally see why you didn't like it.
1: <laughs> this, um, I think, less up for debate is The Teacher, which I absolutely adored. And I come from a series with much less of a cultural knowledge about films from this part of the world. Can you tell us a bit about The Teacher?
3: I can. Uh, Czech director Jan Trebek has actually made a Slovak film, and this distinction is um, important to folks from that part of the world. Uh, It's a a film about a corrupt teacher, basically who manages to blackmail the parents of her charges... Uh, in order to just in, have a better quality of life, it's, there's a satirical element, but it's actually not really that satirical. It's pretty close to the the mark. I've certainly heard from many people who lived through such times. Um, it's uh, there is a, a wonderful central performance. Uh, I forget the actress's name, which the, is a the, bit careless. The
1: eponymous teacher.
3: Yeah, the teacher. But the the actual whole supporting cast is rather wonderful. And there's uh, amongst them a, a this milk toast parent who's totally putty in her hand, who's actually a, a really interesting film director in his own right, Peter Bebiak, and he's uh, the director of a film called The Cleaner that we, we screened at a certain Slovak film festival last year, <laughs> and who directs this year's opening night film, The Line. That was a little Which I'm sure right, will be amazing. unannounced thing um, that has kind of just gone announced. But, you know, you take these moments and see them when you can. The teacher is Jan Rebek in good form again. I think he's actually made quite a number of dud films in the last few years. He uh, had a real... Uh, a spell of quite successful films, uh, burlesquing Czech and Slovak uh, history... Uh, films like Divided, We Fall, uh, Cozy Dens, uh, popendo They were really quite solid and generally quite funny. This film's also quite funny, but it's painfully funny, isn't it?
1: Look, a- I was sold on this. The myth guide, I think, described it as um, the primary school version of 12 Angry Men, and it's like, okay, I'm in, I'm mm. in. This is also mm. a really good 80s film. There's some quality 80s mise-en-scene here, really good wallpaper, really good fashion. There's some politics and history and stuff, but mostly wallpaper for me, like from... <laughs> Okay, you've sold me. I'm bringing the (laughs) intellect to to the (laughs) discussion. Tara, can you please tell us about Spore? This is a film I'm really keen to see.
2: Yeah, it's the new Holland, and um, I I don't love this film, but I have to say that it has a a, a series of wonderful merits. So I think it's one of the most beautiful-looking films and definitely recommend seeing it on a big screen. Um, the, The cinematography is just stunning. It's incredibly carefully... Um, composed and framed and captured, um, and has wonderful slow motion sequences and this gorgeous outdoor setting that it is just a, a beautiful thing to behold. Um, the score equally is incredible, and I think if it, as a piece of artwork to look at and to listen to, this film is exceptional. Um, but what really unfortunately let it down for me is that it's so heavy handed with its narrative um, and the the kind of it's a real message film, um, and it kind of hits you on the head with its, its a message. It's heavy
1: environmentalist message, is that correct? Yeah, it's, it's all about,
2: about it? the welfare of animals, um, you know, I think it's kind of preaching to an already converted audience in some senses, but it really plays that too didactically against the kind of evil nature of man, and I think that when you posit humans as just innately evil, you kind of lose the argument, because if you don't have humanity, you can't really get humans on board, so it's incredibly beautiful to look at, a really stunning film, but I I just felt like the message was just like a big sledgehammer and it was too, too painful to, to experience for me. I'm going to give a shout-out to a very
1: different film, a film called Closeness by Kantini Balagov. Uh, this is a Russian film um, by a student of Alexander Sukharov, who I guess most of us know from Russian Ark. This film is not like Russian Ark. This is um, a really tough film. It's a hard watch. I'm not big on... Um, on triggers and you know trigger warnings, but there there are scenes. Uh, a video is played in this film of a, of a live execu- of a real life execution. So it's a fictional film, but it includes footage of a uh, real death. Um, it's a very difficult film, but a very important one. It's about a young woman in a minority community, um, just dealing with the violence amongst both her family and and cross between within her own community but also coming at her community from the outside it's a really difficult watch but one of those films that you're relieved that you've seen afterwards because it changes the way that you think um, aesthetically you would not probably pick him as a sukharov student but in terms of his audacity i think this is a really interesting film you are listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple fm in melbourne australia Nocturama is... It really is one of my films of the year. I, I kind of knew nothing going in. I didn't really... And I'm glad that I didn't. So, in yeah. a way, I guess that makes us talking about it a little bit <laughs> redundant. Look, the, the plot, in a way, is quite simple. It's a group of young people in Paris from different cultural, social, economic backgrounds... Um, they're all young, they're all in their 20s, they come together to execute, to plan and execute a series of terrorist attacks in the city, and they've agreed to basically hide out in a luxury department store once the acts are committed. That is the setup, that is the film. <laughs> um, It's extraordinary. I can't still quite get a handle on it, but I know that it left a remarkable impact on me. I just... And Blondie, let me... (laughs) Tara, what did you make of Nocturama? I know it's been a while since you saw it. Yeah,
2: it was a little while ago now. Um, But I I agree with you. I think that, you know, the, the greatest thing about it is that the conceit is so simple and it kind of doesn't get too carried away in worrying about plot points, but it really becomes about the relationships between the characters and the way that that plays out in this... It's it's an incredibly great setting... The, the kind of luxury department store. I mean, one, because I think somewhere there's like a deep harbored desire to be locked in a department store overnight. I always, you know, overnight. I had
1: that same thought yeah. when I watched it. It's like when I was a kid, this was yeah. my dream. being Locked too. in Maya overnight. Yeah. I'd jump on the beds and it's exactly exactly. I'm starting like, to regress.
2: It's like, what would you do if you were stuck in a department store? But also that the, the situation in which they're stuck in the department store is not quite um, as enjoyable as you would imagine. So they, they play out those things of like dressing up in fancy clothes and you know eating the, fa- the fancy food and kind of playing this lifestyle but actually what they're trying to do is undermine and destruct that and so um it does have this interesting critique of the way in which we are really drawn to the materialism that we want to destroy and how it's so difficult to overcome those kind of social the the kind of you you can't hate something without buying into it. Yep. like It's impossible to even be angry about and kind of want to destroy something or to dismantle it or deconstruct it without in some way buying into its mythology. And Believing so, in it in yeah. the first place, yeah. that's precisely And so I it. think that setting is really a great place for that to play out. Cerise,
1: tell us about Claire's Camera, the Hong Sang-soo film. There's so much buzz about mm. this, so much excitement. Well, it's
3: not the only Hong Sang-soo film at the festival, is it? I think there are... Well,
1: it's the only one you bloody put on the list. Well, my it's the only one I've
3: seen. <laughs> 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 yeah, Probably it's the only one with Isabelle Huppert in that's all that counts. All right, so that's my piece. Here it is. Here it
0: is. not a festival
1: without her.
0: No.
3: Well, it, it's such a, a light film. It's frothy, it's fun, it's silly, it's all about. I um, hear she had
1: a lemon coat.
3: Is this true? She may have had a coat. Colored, lemon coat.
1: Coloured, lemon coloured, not, not flavoured. Yeah, that would be <laughs> weird. Anyone
3: licked it that's another film. I think she, Isabelle Huppert, is just continuing her world tour of the the world's great directors. She's I, I, though I had a notion maybe she worked with Hong some other time. Taro that doesn't ring a bell. I'm so sure. I imagine that perhaps dreamt that film. But there are I think actually three uh, Hong Sang Soo films in this year's festival. This one though is it's just so light. It's delightful. It's all about. Um, communications that don't quite hit the mark. There's this wonderful stilted delivery between all of the um, conversationalists in this. Some of it you think is just people from different cultures trying to engage with one another... But it all seems very mannered, so mannered that, I mean, it, it could come across... I mean, this might come where, where you two fall into a different camps regarding whimsy and its uh, malcontents, um, Emma, uh, or its uh, disciples, Tara.
0: whimsy. It's just... It's, it's not a, that anyway. whimsy. This is,
3: this, is, this is a very light, whimsical film, and it's perfectly charming, and uh, I found it quite delightful. But there's not really an awful lot, I think, to really dig into there. It's yeah. um, How
1: about Insuriated? <laughs> Emma and Cerise? you both saw Insuriated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we Philippe
0: just we just saw Insuriated, so we actually needed to have a drink after that. Really, it's one of those films, but um, I found it to be. I loved it. I thought it was incredibly compelling. It's a, a basically uh, a domestic bunker film. It's uh, about a family holed up in—I'm not sure where it was in Syria. Do you know the city or what, no, that it was meant to be set? No, one that gets bombed a lot, which is probably most of Syrian cities these days. And um, they are uh, the 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 husband of the family has is out. So um, basically, the um, partner, his wife, plays it's. It's like she's running this household, like um, an army <laughs> unit. She's like the general there telling everyone, quick, like, wash the floor, get the water, um, go in the kitchen, blah, blah, blah. And how they've got... It's all this domestic environment and there's a couple of neighbours who are there whose place has been bombed. Um, this domestic environment um, with this, uh, this warfare going on that you can hear around it and the bombing and occasionally it impedes on them... Um, Obviously, there's that anxiety that runs through the whole film of when it is going to impede on them because obviously that's what's going to happen.
3: Yeah, this was harrowing in the extreme. Yes, it was. There's no lightness in this film, not a lot of hope. Um, So uh, one of many films already that I I have seen that uh, that resolve in a way that doesn't inspire hope. It's not because uh, just the simple fact of a, a... an absence of a clear resolution, but just the sense of, I mean, how this, this is irresolvable, perhaps, this is just going to carry on, not necessarily with this, these particular apartment dwellers, but people all over this city, all over this country, are going to continue to undergo traumatic episodes um, until such time as, well, I don't know, none of us know, do we? No, we Everyone in this film is terribly out of their depths and just hanging on for dear life. So it's just a, a, a siege situation, um, and... It's just grim. It's so grim. It's the grimmest thing I've seen yet, this festival. The gauntlet I've, is thrown down. Right I've there. seen a grimmer uh, film. It's not a contest. <laughs> <laughs> I, I
1: have no way to link to the next film, but Tara, I do believe that you found Stanley Tucci's final portrait grim in its own special way.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I don't know that it's grim in the same kind of context, but yeah, I mean, Stanley Tucci is somehow, hot. He is hot. I do want to just throw that in. That's fine. Yeah, I'm nuts, but nuts so for the Tucci. I could
0: get you there. I'm sorry. <laughs> Sorry, that is so... He's, that's for afterwards, Alex. We'll talk about that.
2: It's okay. I think that's probably... That's a fine place to start because um, I don't know why he made this film. Because it's, it's hot. <laughs> film doesn't need to be made. Um, so it's based on the James Lord memoir, So um, who in 1964 sat for uh, Alberto Giacometti and, you know, to, to be painted for a portrait. And it's based on this memoir by a journalist of what is a series of kind of like... Delay of him being able to leave and him striking up this relationship with Giacometti and sitting for such a long time that was supposed to be a day and then it was a few days and then it was a week, etc. And it goes on and on like this. But I think the the key problem with this is that this film is about duration. Um, and duration unless it's experimental doesn't really play out well in cinema Um, because sitting and watching somebody paint someone is not fascinating um, viewing experience and so then the further problem is in, in an effort to make it exciting which is quite difficult there's an awful lot of like fast paced camera movements that just make no sense and aren't necessary so it kind of heightens the stylistic elements in order to make up for the fact that the story just doesn't have anything of weight to Kind of offer an audience of a sitting kind of cinematic experience. It just isn't, is not suited to the, the medium. Speaking of duration, we are going to do
1: a quick quick uh, run through the science fiction film that's showing at MIF this year. Duration, I hope you've got the stamina. I think stamina is the word for it. On 12th of August, there is the science fiction marathon uh, with our friends at the Astor Cinema. We will talk about some of the films screening in that marathon shortly, but there are other science fiction films on the programme that we are going to zoosh through now. Is that even a word, Zoosh?
0: Zhush. Mm. zhush. Yeah. Shout
1: out to my boy, Elio Petri. His 1960 film, five film, The Tenth Victim. Is playing. It's kind of like James Bond meets The Hunger Games, but that dismisses completely the intense artistry and politics of Elio Petri's film, films. His um, film A Quiet Day in the Country with with our Lord and Master mm. Franco Nero played at MIF a few years ago. Oh, my God. Um, our Lord and Master. Our Lord and Master, Master Franco Nero. <laughs> and Vanessa Redgrave. And I think, speaking of our Lord and Master Franco Nero, he's actually in the... the uh, sci-fi marathon in The Visitor, <laughs> he where he plays. Jesus. Said, why not? He
0: is why why Jesus, not? He's my really? lord and master. He is. A, a blonde Franco Nero, long blonde locks.
1: <laughs> it's quite amazing. Cerise, so tell us about Ikari. Am I, I mispronouncing
0: that? Uh,
3: XB1, sure. Yeah, I'd love to. This this extraordinary um, Czechoslovak sci-fi film, much underseen but recently digitally restored, Uh, It's the the work of a director named Jindryk Polak but more importantly perhaps it's an adaptation of a Stadislav Lem novel the Polish writer who also wrote the book Solaris or the book that at least inspired the film's Solaris the Tarkovsky one more famously than perhaps the Soderbergh one hopefully more famously but this is uh, scripted by... Oh, there's, there's this whole panoply of wonderful Czechoslovak talent from that amazing 1960s period involved in this film, a scriptwriter named Pavel Juracek, who made amazing films and contributed to the script of Daisies, for example. And we most love impo- Daisies. <laughs> there's so we much love Daisies love here. And uh, in particular, the the soundtrack work, the score of uh, Zdenek Lishka, the... I think the composer least known in the West who most deserves to be up on a par with Morricone for innovation and brilliance and um, consistent brilliance, but utterly inconsistent in terms of how his scores uh, manifest. It's just this very eerie, quite minimalist sci-fi film that I think quite rightfully is getting its elevation very belatedly into that that pantheon of great sci-fi films now that people are beginning to twig that it fed into... Uh, Gene Roddenberry at an early age, You mm-hmm. oh, Star Trek, and uh, other... Oh, let's, that, that Kubrick fellow. Might have just drawn a little <laughs> I've bit. I've heard in of that. him. I've heard yeah, of him. Yeah, yeah he's Bit of right. a hack, but uh, 2001 was all right.
1: Speaking of iconic films, the uh, Don Siegel, 1956, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, is playing, I have to say, the Body Snatchers adaptations are probably my favourite series of, of remake films. I think every single one of them is amazing, mm. including the Nicole, the Nicole Kidman one that always gets... Kind of just hacked the on. Invasion. I think it's a, yeah, yeah, I loved it. I loved it. But the Ferrara one is incredible. Obviously the nineteen seventy eight, the Donald Sutherland yeah, is seventy eight. That's just an uh, amazing film. One Kauff- of the most important Philip political Kauffman. films. Mm. The Kaufman. Mm. But this is the original. This is the original, the this original's original. playing, which is a really yeah. special I think it's really up there with the greatest sci fi films of the fifties, which is really a big call because it was a decade.
0: I found I feel it sort of sits really well with the, the day the earth stood still. For yeah. some reason yeah, it these does. two films yeah. they feel like the partner films together. And it's just a great little piece of paranoia and um, McCarthyism and all that sort of thing, the, the communists within, you know, which is aliens in this case or pod people. Pod people. Um, uh, but it's this lovely, you know, snapshot of small town America as well and how everything appears normal, mm, but not yeah.
1: quite. Mm. Um, Speaking of really influential films, uh, Joseph Losey's 1962 film, a science fiction film that he made for Hammer. Joseph Losey is one of my favourite directors, just hands down. He's had a really he had a really extraordinarily diverse career. Yeah, I love um, Lucy. I show. love Lucy. I, I do. I deeply love Lucy. This yes. is a sci-fi film for very early in the days of Hammer, um, who are renowned more for horror. These Are the Damned is amazing. You watch the first ten minutes of this, and you understand why it has the reputation of being a very strong influence on our friend Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. Yes. A Clockwork Orange in many ways is a love letter to These Are the Damned. And like Body Snatchers, I think um, These Are the Damned hones in very specifically on Cold War paranoia fears, um, and a really hot. Possibly not altogether sober Oliver Reed. Mm. <laughs> possibly, not. possibly not sober. I don't think
0: he ever was sober. No, I don't think so either. I think it's interesting in this that every time he opens his mouth in this film, it makes me, I can't, I'm kind of taken aback because there's not that thespian Oliver Reed. He's voice. not a thesp in this. He's, no. a, he's a thug. He's, he's a hooligan. He's a juvenile delinquent. He is. In he the is. terminology of the he's day. In sh- he's in a gang. Yeah, but this film really goes, it starts with that sort of crazy seaside ju- juvenile delinquent and see it's a beautiful town in, in, in the UK. Maybe it's Bristol. Is Bristol on the ocean? <laughs> that's that's Brighton. Know. It's actually Brighton, I think. Oh, is that Brighton? <laughs> Taras, Taras it, is it's a, a good <laughs> <But> It's <laughs> okay. It's okay. But um, then it goes somewhere completely, uh, you know, it goes into like John Wyndham, Midich Cuckoo kind of territory. So it's a, a really
1: intriguing, interesting film with also um, amazing sculptures. We're going to race through some things. <laughs> I have to give a really quick shout-out to what is quite literally one my all time top 10 favorite films. I cannot believe it is playing in our city on the big screen. I've never seen it big before. Uh, Hiroshi Teshigahara's Face of Another from 1966. 1966 mm-hmm. was just an extraordinary year for film. I put Face of Another alongside Bergman's uh, Persona and um, John Frankenheimer's Seconds. They all, all came out in mm-hmm. the same year. These are intense, heavily, heavily stylized films about. Identity, faces and identity. Um, Face of another cannot be described. It's this extraordinarily beautiful, very angry film. There's a lot of um, personal politics, but also it feeds into quite explicitly into post-war trauma. It's just beautiful. Staying with Japan, let's have a quick, quick, quick chat about the sci-fi marathon. Tetsuo Iron Man. Cerise, shout out for Iron Man. Is oh, the bong packed?
3: Oh, the bong <laughs> is packed and then some. It's spilling over. It's a mess. There are dregs everywhere. It's, incredible it's a incredible crazy. film.
1: 89, just The is. Tsukamoto is. film. How about Cronenberg's Existence? Have you got any love for that?
3: I, I do, but not as mm. much as for Tetsuo. No, I'm,
1: I'm at home to Tetsuo. Emma, yeah. you're, you're big on the Cronenberg, I believe. I am big on
0: the Cronenberg. I like this because it kind of buys into... Existence is sort of his second, the, the part two of Cronenberg's career, and it it actually riffs on part one of Cronenberg's career. So if anyone's seen something like Videodrome, um, if they haven't, they should, uh, this is almost like a follow-up film from it. So it's, you know, the play on that kind of biological... Technology, our bodies merging into it, whereas with Videodrome, it was around media, TV, and that kind of convergence. This one's around video gaming. The drive-ins are also video screen culture. I just tried to make the
1: worst segue there, and it just, it just fell flat. I don't care. Brian Trenchard-Smith, he would want it that way. One of our great filmmakers. Yes. Really awesome underrated chap. This mm. is an amazing film. Dead End Drive-In um, from 1986... Uh, it's, it's a bunch of street hoods imprisoned in a drive-in. It's based on a short story by Peter Carey that was originally published in Overland Literary Journal. I will be on a panel on the 17th of August about dystopia in cinema, centred around Overland republishing this original Peter Carey story, Crabs. Drive-in, uh, Dead End Drive-In is a hoot as is a friend of the cave, our friend Nacho Vigalondo's... Can, can, can
3: we not go back to crabs? Because right?
1: the main the main character's name's Crabs. Right. See, oh.
0: see?
3: he's not an actual crab.
1: He doesn't crab. have them. He doesn't no,
0: have them. No.
1: Nacho Vigalondo's Time <laughs> Crimes is, again, uh, this is one of those films that is... It just... It changed how I thought about genre film very specifically. I didn't realise that it could be done not just smartly but also with such an ethical bent. Um, I think he's a really extraordinary filmmaker. I think he's a really extraordinary person. Yeah. Um, I'm a, a, a confessed fangirl. Who recently yes. made
3: Colossal. That's who recently yes. made Colossal.
1: I should have made said Colossal. this. He's more familiar mm-hmm. for Colossal.
3: Three... People are
1: We are back. We are going to have a very quick chat about the extraordinary Australian film that's playing this year at the Melbourne International Film Festival. We've, of course, already talked about Jungle, the new Greg McLean film. Greg's got another film called The Belco Experiment that's playing. Um, We've also talked about the great Brian Trenchard-Smith, Dead End Drive-Ins. I'm going to say crabs again, just to upset Sir (laughs) (laughs) I'm
2: not Um, (laughs) upset. I was just curious.
1: (laughs) Emma and Tara, you both saw The Silent Eye. How was that?
2: It's beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think Emil has a really uh, ex- just a, an exquisite talent for capturing um, the essence of people on screen. And yeah, this is just a, a love letter to a, the you know to the character. It's just a, a really gentle capturing of somebody's soul. Mm-hmm. A, a few people's
0: souls. I mean, it's an interesting piece because it's um, it's, it's about um, Cecil Taylor, who's a free jazz. Um, um, pianist and um, Min Tanaka, who's a Japanese buto dancer. So we're talking really kind of high art here. It's not easily infiltrated. So, you know, people should be aware of that in walking in there. And I think Emil actually said in the screening that we went to that um, he's had walkouts and he called it somnambulistic. I think that was the word that he put to it. Um, and it is it, it is a film that you really just sink into. But these guys are incredible. And not only that... But the filmmakers, Emile and Germaine, who is his cinematographer, the filmmaking actually plays part of the performance. Mm -hmm. It's a completely spontaneous performance done over three days and filmed in um, Cecil Taylor's apartment in New York. So his actual, it's literally his bedroom with his piano beside it. So all his curios in the room play a part of it, part of the staging. And it kind of goes out in and out of the performance with the
1: sound design as well. It's, It's an amazing piece. Amazing. Speaking of amazing pieces, I'm gonna give a shout out to my own program because I have a oh microphone. Dear, like, yes. gosh. Man, I know. <laughs> um, do I it. it's I'm great. do it. I mean, you as a table of pioneering women yourselves, <laughs> tell me how much you love the program that I co-curated. Oh. Just tell me how much you adore. Tell me what your favorite thing is. It's awesome. And tell me how there's nothing about it that you don't like.
2: Well, it's the most exciting thing, honestly, for me in the entire programme, actually, genuinely. I don't care if you're lying. <laughs> I do
1: not care if you're lying. Definitely not lying.
2: Um, to, see, to see these films on a big screen, restorations and also film prints, I mean, just what a staggering opportunity that is. Um, some of them, mostly films actually that I've never seen before, but even with the ones that I have seen, films that just don't get an airing, um, and really incredible. I just watched Tenderhooks the other night, and what a film That's that a is. a treasure. I mean, treasure you know, it's, it's one of those experiences that I know will end up on my Senses of Cinema top ten experiences at the end of the year. It was just fab.
3: And that the restoration was yes. spectacular. That was a
2: special
1: night. Good Friday stuff. night we had the um, world premiere of the National Film and Sound Archive restoration of Anne Turner, the wonderful Anne Turner Celia, and both Anne and Rebecca Smart were there and it was a really special night. Yeah,
3: I'd love to be a digital restoration oh, done it was well. Beautiful. And uh, bedeviled to sing that.
1: Um, uh, Moffatt, Tracy Moffat, one of our song. greatest visual artists. Mm. More um, to question. come,
3: isn't there, Alex? Starstruck, I'm especially looking yep. forward to. I know the film well, but Sh- I love that. Broken
1: bit. Highway is one that might have fallen off the radar, but I'd really recommend. It's like if a Nick Cave song came to life, it's just beautiful. Um, Gillian Armstrong's High Tide, as well as Starstruck as playing, um, and uh, Floating Life. Lots and lots of good things. Uh, we can stop talking about the films that I co-curated. <laughs> there's an omission this evening in that you may have noticed that we haven't mentioned that much about horror film, which is possibly the first time ever we've done a show and not inadvertently <laughs> tied it back to horror. This is because dun, 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 it's alive. Next week is the Triple R Radiothon, which lo and behold, the, the, the thousands and billions of dollars that I've been sliding into Triple R as, as donations <laughs> has finally paid off, and they're doing a, a horror-themed radiothon because <laughs> I'm all about the horror. So next week we are going to talk about a lot about horror films playing at Myth, but there's a few that will be uh, you won't be able to see. After next week's show, so we thought we'd give them a quick, quick shout shoot. out. Now, um, Blade of the Immortal, Takashi Miike's yeah. is playing in the Night Shift. It's not so. It's, it's not, not much so, horror, so much foreign no, I think no, no, Night no, Shift no.
0: has a general dark motif. It's, it's Night Shift. Where do we put Takashi Miike? That's what they thought. So in it went every into, section it went into <laughs> Night Shift. It's it's a samurai epic. It's fantastic. It's gorgeous looking. It's hilarious. It has more limbs lopped off than any film I have ever seen. Usually, you know how. a limb lopping off is a central part of a film that you remember. You remember that scene. No, no, no. This happens across the whole thing. And he really gets it right. You know, his 100th film, he gets it right
1: here. It's a great film. It's very enjoyable. Tara, you saw the mole Song, Hong Kong Capriccio, which is another Mickey film. I don't think that was in this in the night shift section. No. It's an and was this in the,
3: the 99th or the 101st is this? <laughs> the, the
2: film is, Yeah, it's crazy. So we, I mean, I think he made five films in between. This is the sequel yes, to the first nice. mole Song film, but he made another five other films in the interim, I guess, because you know he just had enough He's time. He made another one while we've been on air. <laughs> him and Sion Sono
0: there. and they're yeah. all
2: yeah. two and a half hours this is super long I mean this film is crazy and ridiculous and if you saw the first one it's about this undercover agent Reiji who is accident prone sex obsessed and kind of just like a lunatic undercover cop trying to infiltrate the Yakuza the, the only way to describe this film is like um, a confusing technicolour yawn that's like Takashi Miike put all of his films into some kind of blender and then just threw them onto the screen and put some yellow on top that's what it looks like <laughs>
1: Another film that's not in the Night Shift uh, program, but uh, loosely I think falls under horror in that it is horrific, is the documentary Death in the Terminal by Asaf Sudri and Tali Shamesh. Every year at MIF, I think those of us who who dedicate ourselves quite seriously to it for that that fortnight or more that it's on, there's always a treasure. There's always the thing that you you just see on a whim and it just blows you away. This is mine. This is a documentary about... um, a massacre in a in a bus terminal uh, in Israel, and it uses surveillance footage to tell the story, uh, combined with interviews, and it's devastating. Um, what actually happens? It's it's a kind of I guess the loose description would be what happens when the people involved in a situation like this mistake the person responsible. What if they pick the wrong person to retaliate against? It is honestly one of the films that really. Um, that cliche, what would I do if I was there, it's it, it it's a haunting
2: film. It's a really haunting film.
1: Tara, you saw Death in the Terminal as well, I believe.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it really will... It's, it shakes you up. I mean, it's just... It's very un- graphic. Unbearable very to watch. Graphic. And I really not... I would actually put a trigger warning on yeah, this film. Too, like, not necessarily you for everyone murdered, to watch. You see somebody murdered, you actually see and, a human being murdered. And it's, it's not just horrific. the fact that you watch them being murdered, it's the um, extreme brutality and detachment of human life with which it's done. And and that is really kind of terrifying. It's like you can see into the, the kind of dark soul of the moment that somebody switches off and decides that a person is no longer a person. And, I mean, that is just about as terrifying as cinema can ever get. Thank you.
1: You have been <laughs> listening to Plato's Cave live on location from MIF's Festival Lounge at the Forum Melbourne as part of Miff. The MIF Talks program. Thanks to our team of Triple R volunteers and support staff Brian, Lauren, Beck, Elizabeth, Andy, Paul, Kelly, and Brad. And of course, big thanks, yay, to the Forum Melbourne the, and the team at MIF for having us. A reminder again that 3 Triple R's Radiothon kicks off this Friday, August the 11th, and we'll be back with the Radiothon edition of Plato's Cave next Monday. Hope you can join us for that. We will, of course, have our fearless leader Thomas Caldwell on board for that. Um, and big thanks, of course, to, always to another pioneering woman, Faith Everyone. Who looks after our podcast and uh, is a part of the Miffs Critics campus this year? She's very very busy. She
0: couldn't be with us tonight. We miss her. Shout out to Faith.
3: You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best known community radio station, 3RRR,
0: 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events, and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.